oh, I can try to out-yell a hiring manager. You can't, but you can out-fax someone with evidence of superior performance. And that, I think, is the key. And that's why we structure interviews. Hey, let's go through a structured process and look for evidence that this person has performed uh, work in, compa- in comparison to what you really need done. And that's a game changer. This is the Rebel HR Podcast, the podcast where we talk to HR innovators about all things people leadership. If you're looking for places to find about new ways to think about the world of work, this is the podcast for you. Please subscribe from your favorite podcast listening platform today and leave us a review. Rebel on, HR Rebels. Rebel HR listeners, thanks for joining us this week. This is going to be a super fun one. I've been following Lou for a long time, and uh, this is going to be a fun discussion. Uh, Lou Adler is our guest today, the Sherlock Holmes of recruitment. He got a good whiff of corporate BS and turned the recruitment industry on his head, a true uh, rebel HR. Uh, He's been a nuclear missiles engineer, ran a manufacturing company, financial analyst for the 37th largest company in the world, director of business ops. Uh, for the first handheld calculator company and GM for an automotive manufacturer. Realized the hiring process was broken, so he invented what is now famously known as the performance-based hiring model. Welcome to the show, Lou. Hey, thank you very much, Kyle, for inviting me. Delighted to be here, and we'll see if we can screw up some HR people today. (laughs) Well, that's what we are all about. Um, You know, I've told people, the rebel HR, it's kind of oxymoronic, right? You know, HR is not supposed to rebel, but... Um, I've been saying for years, I think there's a better way to do some of the things uh, that we try to do. So I want to ask you, uh, what got you focused on hiring the right way? Well, first of all, I'm going to take, I'll I'll answer that question in a minute. But when you said about the rebel HR, and I remember some talk I gave and probably 20 or 30 years ago, and it was about HR. Uh, and a bunch of HR people there, and I was in the HR space. And I said, the key to being successful in HR is to break some rules. <laughs> and I remember there was three older women at the time, but at the time I was probably 40 and they were a little bit older. Now I'm 75, so nobody's older than me anymore. And they almost fell off their chair and they walked out of the room. Uh, and I never hadn't thought about that for 30, 40 years until it happened. But when you said that, and I think that's a problem is you got to break some rules. So let me kind of get back to your original question is I was running a manufacturing company when I was early, very early 30s, uh, 300 people. We were making automotive components. I hated the group president, literally hated the group president. And he came by every other Thursday and told me how bad I was. Uh, and I was so depressed and I got over it over the weekend. And for next nine, before we came down again, I was pretty good. And we actually turned around a company like I said I would. But it was the corporate bureaucracy. This guy didn't know anything. He didn't know what was going on. He just would complain, 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 even if we made our budgets. So I just got, and there's other stories about why I got fed up with corporate bureaucracy. But I started to use these recruiters. Uh, and I realized they had a better life than I did. Uh, they were remarkable recruiters. I hired five people through them in uh, one year. Uh, CFO, head of product, uh, cost accounting manager, head of manufacturing. So those were the positions I was familiar with. So then one day I, just, I really quit four times in one year. Uh, my first search assignment was two days after I quit. And I gave him six months notice. So this was not – and I many times I thought it was a stupid idea, but I still – decided to push it because every other Thursday still came around. Um, 
And my first search assignment was for a manufacturing company in the automotive industry. It was in Southern California, but there was a lot of components and accessory products being built down here. Uh, and the president of this company, whom I knew I'd work with, uh, said, I'm looking for a plant manager. And he gave me this job description that listed skills, duties, responsibilities, and some, hey, need results driven, 10 years of this, heavy manufacturing, yada, yada, yada. And I looked at it and I said, Mike, this is not a job description. This is a person description. A job doesn't have skills, competencies, and experience. A person does. Let's put the job description in the parking lot and tell me what this person needs to do to be successful. He said, I want someone to turn around the plant. Fine. He said, let's walk through the plant. I had so much manufacturing background. I was very comfortable walking through a manufacturing plant. Walked through the manufacturing plant. It was a crummy plant laid out poorly, bad controls, bad material processing, bad manufacturing processes, no metrics whatsoever. And I said, we'll find somebody to fix all of that. Three weeks later, I made my first placement. I have never used a job description listing skills, duties, and responsibilities ever since that. And I've probably done a thousand of these uh, maybe even more. But even last week, I did one for a senior systems architect and a week before someone to be a VP uh, of a retail company trying to double their sales in new distribution channels. But the question I always ask is, what does this person need to do to be successful? And we won't compromise on that work. We can create that work in five or six performance objectives. We'll not compromise on the performance objectives but give me some relief on the mix of skills, experience, and competencies. That is the difference maker. And that to me, if HR continues to use and use the excuse of you have to legally required to put skills, experience, and competencies, they're not talking to the right lawyers. You have to use objective criteria, but not a bunch of BS that doesn't predict performance and only screens out the best people. So that's my story. I'm sticking with it. 40 years <laughs> of history right there, Kyle. <laughs> I love it. And, you know, I can hear it. I mean, you know, and I'm, I'm kind of fighting against, you know, the Kyle of the past and all the, you know, all the certification. It's like, so what do you like? Oh yeah. How do you make a defensible job description in the event that you get, you know, sued for, you know, discriminatory hiring practices? And I mean, that's, you know, but then I got to thinking, um, and I had kind of had this epiphany a number of years ago that, yeah, you have to, you, you have to be inclusive. You have to hire the right way. You have to hire the right people and you have to be, you know, you have to have a diverse pool of candidates to hire from. But at the end of the day, you're, you could actually be screening people out because you have these arbitrary, you know, skills, um, experiences and competencies that maybe don't really apply to the job. So, um, and the other thing I'll say, I mean, like, you know, lawyers, um, it's not black and white. If a lawyer tells you something, you should always ask another lawyer because well, you'll here, probably get a different issue, answer. So that same issue, people, as I started speaking to a lot of groups and making these statements, I did have a legal issue where people started pushing me back. So you can't do that. And I said, I'm going to talk to the best lawyer in the country. So I actually talked to a couple of labor attorneys. And for a book that I wrote about 10 years ago, uh, I talked to um, the head of the OFCCP practice at Littler Mendelssohn, David Goldstein. He's a partner there, senior partner. He speaks in front of the courts, the Supreme Courts, and litigated more wrongful uh, hiring issues. He wrote a white paper that said, which basically concluded exactly what you just said. 
he basically said skills, duties, and the responsibilities, unless they're scientifically used to predict performance, are discriminatory. Mm-hmm. Performance objectives, defining the work that needs to be done, are objective criteria. The law just says objective criteria. Uh, building a team of accountants to launch a new accounting system on a McCormick Dodge platform in six months is as objective of having a CPA uh, and 10 years experience. In fact, one of them is objective, the other one is subject subjective, as long as they can do that work using objective criteria. And that now opens a talent pool to everybody who has a different mix of skills, experience, and competencies. And that's the game changer. And HR people still fight that, uh, which has surprised me. So if you want to be a rebel, throw away your job descriptions that are discriminatory and really define the work that needs to be done. Yeah, there you go. You heard it here first. <laughs> you could throw that. Well, I won't say it out. first, Kyle, but you heard it here again. Right. Uh, and why HR doesn't want to do that is what I find surprising. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, to me, that just sounds easier. You know, so you're telling me that I can like eliminate all this kind of this subjective criteria and this many years of school and this many years of experience and just hire somebody to do the job well, that well, I need to do. Well, it's not easier because, <laughs> and this is the, the reason it's not easier is hiring managers are unwilling to define those performance objectives. So that's a cultural issue. Mm-hmm. If each manager, accounting manager, manufacturing manager, sales managers, what is the criteria that you need to have to be successful? And if that isn't systematized within your company, uh, you're not going to get there. So conceptually, it's different, but I don't know that it's easier. But it's better uh, in terms of how you should drive your organization. And you can look at Google's Project Oxygen or Gallup's Q12. Clarifying expectations is what managers should do, but they're reluctant to do it. So we've given managers a free pass. And if HR wants to now incorporate something like, hey, let's clarify expectations up front, you got to have a system to do that. Now, that starts where you say, how do you implement that idea? So it's not necessarily, let's say it's a better idea. You'll raise the talent bar. You'll be able to uh, manage and uh, people based on what they want to do and all those kinds of things, but it's different. I don't know that it's easier, but it's far better. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. Um, fair point. And I'm, I'm reflecting in um, conversations that I've had as I've been drafting your, you know, these position profiles and so on. And um, a lot of times you ask that question, you know, what do you, what do you need this job to do? You know, what kind of, what, what kind of output do you need from this individual? And a lot of times the answer is, well, I hadn't really thought about that. Right. <laughs> I mean, they, you know, they need to show up, you know, Monday through Friday and, you know, to do what I ask them to do. And like, okay, well, <laughs> what else is there? <laughs> so as you've worked with organizations and you've worked with a lot, um, you know, everybody from, I think, uh, uh, you know, some little known brands like, you know, Disney and Paycom and General Dynamics to, you know, I'm sure hundreds, if not thousands of other clients. As you've gone into these organizations and and really kind of started to shake things up as we think about recruiting, where do you start? Where where do you kind of um, target that, uh, the, the catalyst of change? Well, I think it's, well, it starts with the hiring manager. So let's be, uh, so if I was going to go into a company uh, let's say a manufacturing company of 10,000 people, it doesn't matter. I would say, okay, let's try it with one job that's a critical job for us. And let's profile that job, software developer, marketing analyst, sales uh, reps. Let's profile the job and let's really understand and map that job for a group of people. And let's create a pilot 
with half a dozen managers or a dozen managers, half a dozen recruiters, and really build the process and validate that it works. And you'd have to kind of do that manually. You, you got your uh, business systems, your workday or your ATS. So you got to kind of tie it that way. But I, but I think what companies do is they don't want to do this little pilot to validate it. They want to make something easy. So, okay, we'll go to Lominger. Oh, we'll go to success factors and we'll implement this company wide. Well, you do it company wide. It's an HR process driven from the top down. I'm going to contend, no, it's got to be driven from the bottom up. Let's get a bunch of hiring managers that are open and willing, put them on a management development program. Let's say this is how we're going to hire in the future. And now you've got a, a benchmark to how to do that. Then you say, okay, now we've done it with manufacturing because I will actually say the technical jobs or the process jobs are probably a little bit easier. Um, even Well, any, I don't want to actually say, I would say technical managers when I describe it, hey, let's just define the work as a series of performance objectives. And we say, okay, what does a person really need to do over a year? Well, they got to design a new circuit. They got to turn around the factory. They got to implement this new reporting system. Fine. What would they do first? They'd figure out what the problem is. They'd evaluate different alternatives. They'd put a plan together. They'd get the resources. They'd uh, implement it. So there's a sequence of steps that goes on. But that logic of how do you manage work effectively uh, conceptually is logical. And process-based managers get that. It's okay, I'll try that. Now you got to systematize it, which is the hard part. How do you systematize it for that group and then expand it? Uh, so I think there's a way to do it. And you can tell my background, as you said, is an engineer. I've been in engineering, manufacturing, systems, cost accounting. So when I got into hiring, I just said, this is broken. Why would someone – so you're a manufacturing guy, Kyle. So to me, when a manager says you send two or three candidates and a manager says, I don't like any of these, send me more candidates – now, in manufacturing, if you have a broken machine producing crap, you wouldn't say, let's produce some more crap and hopefully we get one good one to come out. <laughs> it's so illogical. So as a manufacturing guy, I said, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to figure out wrong with why weren't the first three any good. The job is spec wrong. The salary is wrong. I'm not a good interviewer. You're not a good interviewer. We don't really understand what's going on. So you start thinking of it that way as hiring is a business process like manufacturing with yield, you start working each of those pieces. And that's all I've done is just, I've just taken my manufacturing background of process control and say, okay, how do we fix each piece? And each piece is, now you got people involved here, so each piece is a little bit more complicated, but there is a benchmark there that works. That was kind of your, that was a long answer to a short question of how you implement it, but it's a, uh, that's conceptually the way I'd go, at least trying to figure it out and getting there. I, I, I love that approach. And, you know, it's funny. Um, it took me about 15 years to figure out exactly what you just described in, in about two minutes there. Where It took me 25 years. So you're a lot faster <laughs> than me. To, I could describe it, but doing it is a lot well, of it. Uh, yeah, I should I should step back. I'm not going to claim that I've got it figured out, but but at least understanding theoretically the issue between somebody in HR designing what they think is this beautiful system uh, to to eliminate bias in the recruiting process and get the best candidates and you know and and rank people against their position profile. Like I I started my career in one of the largest um, organizations in in America. And they had a, there was a process for everything. So when you go into an interview, it's like, 
you you have a column to fill out, you have a rating to give, you you know, and you like force rank all your candidates, and it's supposed to just work beautifully. Um, and it it's, it was terrible. We sucked. It was like uh, we would have a about a forty percent turnover rate from new hires, and, and it was just um, just kind of a mess. And then in my current company, when I came in, there were almost no recruiting structures. But what I did have was really seasoned managers that were able to tell me in about uh, ten to fifteen minutes of talking to a candidate, uh, this is this this candidate will not be able to achieve this objective. <laughs> you know, and it and it was pretty amazing to me that that I was you know, and, and opening that I, I was walking into an organization that didn't have this beautiful HR system, but had these really good leaders. And, uh, from that standpoint, then that's, you know, for, it's a whole lot easier to work with great leaders and just put some systems in place with great leaders and help them out, uh, than it is to try to put the best system in place and, and have mediocre leaders. So that's, so I tend to agree with you on that one. Most of us have probably received a corporate gift or swag in the past, but how many of those did you end up keeping? Probably not many. That's why you need to check out swag.com for your company. It's the best place to buy custom gifts and swag that people will actually want to keep. I can tell you that I struggle to try to find the right gifts for my employees. Swag.com has so many unique customizable gifts that are pretty cool. Things like yoga mats, custom Apple AirPods, even branded kayaks. Check out episode 53 of Rebel HR, where I talked to Jeremy Parker, the co-founder and CEO of Swag.com, about what makes Swag.com different. They carry premium brands like North Face, Yeti, Nike, and more, and it's all customizable with your company's logo or artwork. You can create custom swag boxes full of great branded items all delivered in a fully unique box. With Swag.com, you can store your swag at their warehouse and ship to individual addresses or send to bulk in a single location and easily manage it from their free-to-use online portal. Go to Swag.com today for the perfect swag and custom gifts for your company. Right now, I have a special offer to help get you started. 10% off your order, but only when you go to Swag.com slash Rebel and enter promo code REBEL10. Remember, for 10% off, Go to swag.com slash rebel and use promo code rebel10. You know, I would say I just, uh, you talked about the Sherlock Holmes approach. And I think, so let me kind of counter a little bit what you said there. Maybe I misunderstood it. You called me the Sherlock Holmes of recruiting. And the reason I say that is I deal with a lot of technical or experienced people who've accomplished a lot in a bunch of different fields. I obviously, as an interviewer and recruiter, I don't know that work. But as an interviewer, what I've discovered, and this is the Sherlock Holmes, is I use deductive evidence. I just say, hey, tell me about the best work you've done in this field. I also know that the best people, whether accountants, engineers, marketing people, salespeople, they're always assigned a stretch project after a few months on the job. You get a good engineer. That manager knows that's a good engineer after 90 days. And they say, okay, I'm going to, Kyle, I'm going to give you this big project or your sales rep. I'm going to give you this tougher client. Oh, you're an accountant. Let me give you that. We got this tough accounting issue to deal. I want you to deal with the lawyers and the accountant and the CPA firm to work this problem out. Hey, I'm going to expose you to this executive. So there's good people always get some kind of recognition early in their career. And so I just looked for that evidence. It's deductive evidence is I'm not judging you 
because I can't judge your technical competency. What I can judge is how others perceive your technical competency. And if they gave you weak clients, boring projects, lateral transfers, month after month projects that didn't stretch you or grow you or take advantage of it, I know that you're an average person. So I look for those things. So that's why I call the Sherlock Holmes approach. So now I also have evidence. So if you as a manager make a, you cannot make a judgment about candidate in 30 minutes. They, anybody who says that they're wrong. They're making a superficial judgment based on first impressions and personality. And those are not predictive. And I've had many and many a manager who's made judgments like that. And I remember one guy for a cost accounting. Uh, CFO spot. No, it was a CFO interviewing someone for a cost manager. And he told me after a 12 minute interview, because uh, I know that's the candidate was there, this candidate was a useless cost accounting manager. I called the guy back and confronted him. I said, Hey, you don't know what you're talking about. This guy set up a McCormick and Dodge platform at a, a, a Ford plant, most complicated ABC costing system in the world. He was asked to lead it worldwide, didn't take the job because his wife was going to school in Southern California, getting her MD degree. And you just lost it because you didn't, because the guy was soft-spoken. Mm-hmm. You interviewed the guy the next day and says, you're absolutely right. This guy's a great cost accountant. That guy, that guy hired 12 people from us in the next year as a recruiter. But you cannot out Oh, I can try to out yell a hiring manager. You can't, but you can out fact someone with evidence of superior performance. And that I think is the key. And that's why we structure interviews. Hey, let's go through a structured process and look for evidence that this person has performed uh, work in compare in comparison to what you really need done. And that's a game changer. Absolutely. And I, I love that, um, you know, that approach. I, and I think, you know, what I heard there is it's a, it comes from a point of humility, understanding that you're not the best judge of talent that other people are who have actually worked with this individual, um, you know, over a, you know, a, a period of, of days. I want to talk about, I want to dig into this, this topic because, you know, we started the conversation talking about kind of throwing out the, throwing out the script on job descriptions and why that's actually not great for diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, so I want to kind of keep that conversation going and talk a little bit about uh, what you mentioned, which is that emotional bias that so many interviewers uh, fall prey to. So as you're going through this process and as you're finding these 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 candidates, how do you address that with the hiring managers? Well, I think it's a very that's a great question, and part of it is I try to make a judgment. And I t- what I tell hiring managers when, in our training is don't use the interview to make an assessment. Use the interview to collect evidence to make the assessment. And, and we have this 10, 10 tools to control your bias and emotion to conduct an objective interview to apply that concept of collect evidence to make the decision. Don't uh, make the decision during the interview. Because if you like somebody, you ask softball questions. If you don't like someone, you look for facts to prove the person's no good, and you can get your answer every way. So part of it is, and we, and this was my, was probably my first retained search of all time, because I was a contingency recruiter for ten or twelve years when I first started. And it, just for people who don't know, contingency you only get paid if you make a placement. Retain they hire you and pay you upfront. Uh, so this was with a company in California. Uh, you might have heard of it. If you're from the West Coast, you definitely know In-N-Out Burger. Uh, if you're in the Midwest, you wouldn't have heard of them. But this was my first retained search. And it was in 1990, only had 80 stores. 
And I gave a little talk to a business group. The president of In-N-Out Burger was there at the time. And I said, don't make a judgment in the first 30 minutes of an interview. Script the interview for 30 minutes uh, because you will make a wrong decision. So script the questions you're going to ask. Ask everybody this scripted interview. And we have that. But that, So about three days later, I get a call. Lou, love that 30-minute uh, question, 30-minute uh, delay. How would you like to do a CFO search? That was my first retained search for In-N-Out Burger. It became my biggest client. The other issues there, the president was ultimately a couple of years later, died in an airplane crash, but uh, still my biggest client. Uh, but the issue was, and then and this is something else I learned, which was equally as important with that client. The president of the company didn't like to do one-on-one -on -one interviews. He just didn't like it. He always wanted to do panel interviews. And he said, Lou, I'm only going to do this if you do panel interviews. And I said, I didn't like it, but I, I went along with it. But as I learned about a panel interview, a well-constructed panel interview, it's got to be well-organized. It can't be everyone asking their planned questions. It's got to be, again, a scripted interview where you have people asking main questions and the panelists asking fact-finding, clarifying issues. That turned out to be probably the best tool to eliminate bias. So waiting 30 minutes, scripted interview, uh, have a panel interview with organized panel where you ask a series of questions off the scripted interview turned out to be an objective assessment. And we have a scorecard now where people at the end of the interview, they take the scorecard, they compare evidence around factors we've seen predict success. And as long as the evidence is close, it's not a wide, and this is a process control issue. As long as everybody agrees about these factors and a factor could be results oriented, technical competencies, building teams, organizing projects, as long as the evidence is pretty close, it's the right thing. When you see a wide variety of evidence, just like a, in a manufacturing process, you see wide variance in uh, product coming off the line, you know you got a process control issue. Now, that, again, it was a very long answer. I gave a two-hour training session in that quick summary, Kyle, <laughs> but that's one of the ways to control bias. Structured interview, wait 30 minutes, have a series of uh, a, and a panel interview, and clearly an understanding of what the job is really all about uh, in terms of performance objectives and asking people to define work they've done and related to those performance objectives, you'll, you'll cut bias and increase objectivity by 50%. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, you know, I think there was so much great content in there, but one of the things that really stuck with me was the, you know, the comment that you, you know, you shouldn't make a judgment during the interview. Right. Oh, it's, it's so hard to do. <laughs> it is tough. It's really tough because oh, we're, we're like, you know, we, we are predisposed to judge people on first impression. Absolutely. You know, what are they wearing? How are they talking? Are they sitting up straight? Are they slumped over? Do they, you know, and, and, um, you know, if you don't actively fight that you're, it's, it's really, um, it's terrible. Uh, and, and you end up with a bunch of people that are just like you and, uh, and you don't get any diversity, um, and you're missing Absolutely. out on, on great talent. Well, I remember this one and I, I don't want to offend anybody, uh, but I learned another dimension of controlling biases, conduct a phone interview first. I'd almost say without zoom, but that's probably all impossible now, but nonetheless conducting a phone interview. So I'm going to go back 25 years or so when I had a client was looking for a national accounts manager, which is sales. Uh, and I conducted the phone call with a fellow and he had this great accomplishment opening up. And I, I'm going to say it was like price, uh, Costco. It was a, opened up a big account. And I said, Ooh, that's pretty cool. Uh, and this is when Costco was really just coming out in the mid nineties. Uh, and then I met the guy in person 
And he was a huge, huge guy. I mean, just so big. I mean, I just, and I was overwhelmed and not feeling positive about this candidate. And I just said, oh, it's not going to work. Terrible first impression. And it took me about 10 minutes to fight through that. And I remembered after the emotional reaction, negative emotional reaction, I remember this guy uh, told me about the story about opening up this major national account, which was Costco. And then I listened to him. So at the end of the 30, 40 minutes of the interview, the guy, I would almost say he lost 30 pounds and grew six inches in height. My imagination of how bad he looked was totally wrong. He played, he was a football player. He played, I know he played football for San Diego State. And once I had that in my mind, his appearance was perfect. And he was a great guy. I mean, he really did accomplish this. So I talked to my client. I said, you got to meet this guy. He's a great guy, but he is a big guy. So I'm telling my client on the phone, this is your guy. He's a big guy. How big is he? He's a big guy. How big? <laughs> oh, he's huge. You will be overwhelmed and you will not be positive about this. He is so, so big. You'll be blown away and you will not feel good about it. And I actually told him this. I said, however, he did open up Home Depot, uh, Costco. He met the guy a couple of days. He said, that guy's not that big a guy. I mean, it was like I, I planted in his mind that he thought this guy was going to be huge. And he was just a football. I said, he's a football player, but he's huge. Uh, he's going to probably break your chairs and open, you know, and I made a big thing about it. And that minimized the negative impact of first impressions. And I've, to me, more hiring mistakes are made because of first impression bias. The second biggest one is not having the performance objectives figured out. But if you put the performance objectives down, what does this person need to be successful? The task, the action result, five or six of those, and plant that this is what we're measuring. And then you wait 30 minutes and you ask questions. Hey, give me examples of work you've done related to this. You usually get the right answer. I mean, there's a lot in that statement, but that's how you un unpack it. But first impression bias is the number one cause. The lack of understanding the job in terms of performance objectives is the reason uh, emotions are the number one cause. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, it's, it's interesting. Um, you know, it, I think a lot of times you'll walk away from an interview, uh, especially with someone that you have some affinity for and you're like, wow, I think they'd be a great, great fit. But then, but then you come back to it and you think about it and you're looking through your slate of candidates and, and it's easy to look back at that resume after you've had that experience and think, but what did they do again? <laughs> like, right. like what? Uh, wait a minute. So we had a great conversation, and they were a great interviewer. But what? You know, it's almost like uh, like that scene in Office Space. Like, what would you say they did there? Right. Like, like, and and it is good. And I think, from my standpoint, I'm a. I I also enjoy collaborative interviews. I like one on one discussions, but certainly collaborative discussions after interviews are over. To, to check that as well. Cause that, that first impression bias, you know, the halo effect, all those types That's of biases, terrible. they're just, they, they will make you fail if you let them, if you don't actively. No, you have to proactively control it. Uh, and you're right. And I could tell the fit factors are, are critical in terms of assessing it. Fit is important, but too many, as you just said it there, you Kyle, you summarized it. What you're actually measuring in the interview is, the person's personality and presentation skills. You're not measuring their performance. Uh, so how do you 
So you got to say, okay, I've got to just put the blinders on and measure this person's performance in relationship to my environment. The environment includes, does this person want to do this work? Is that person intrinsically motivated to do this work? Can this person work with that manager's style? Can this person work with our decision-making process and the depth of resources and uh, the values we hold to be true and are they comparable, particularly the pace and intensity of the company? And if you got a mismatch in any of those fit factors, the person's going to underperform. Absolutely. It, it reminds me of you – know, Probably the first experience that I had with this, it, it, the first manufacturing company I worked for was, you know, I, I came from the school of like, you know, you, you're grading your candidates on communication skills and all these sorts of like uh, competencies. I mean, it was a competency rating type of interview system that I uh, learned on. And then I was on in a, a much more open kind of interview discussion. And I had this candidate in front of me and he had he had long green hair. He, I don't think he'd shave, shaved for the interview. He was wearing a torn up flannel shirt, um, basically like the shirt I'm wearing now, but with holes in it. Um, and like had the, had the wallet chain. And I mean, he looked like he would have rather been anywhere else on planet earth than sitting there at my interview table. Um, but, I, but quite, quite honestly, we were just desperate. So I was like, I don't even care what this guy's communication skills are. Can he do this job? Yes. Is the job open? Yes. Okay. Put them in. And it was a great case study for me and my own personal biases because he turned out to be the best freaking worker that I ever hired in like the entire time that I was in HR there. Cool. Um, and it was just because, you know what, all of those skills that I was judging him on in that interview, the communication and professionalism and all that stuff. And the fact that he didn't even want to be there, you know what that led to? Somebody who just wanted to come to work, get everything done on time, kick ass and not talk to another human being. And you know what? That's exactly what we needed in that job. <laughs> well, and he is, killed it. <laughs> well, the thing about communication skills, and I think this is a big one, is where I believe competency models are fundamentally flawed. Uh, because your judgment on communication skills or every other interview is going to be a personal, but that is a bias itself. So, and then you have someone who's got an accent and you say, ah, they couldn't communicate. So you come up with an excuse. So what I do in the interview is they said, well, the guy's got to be, or the person's got to have great communication skills. So I always say, well, time out. What is the, how does a person use those communication skills on the job? Oh, they got to make presentations to the management team every quarter. Fine. Let's judge the ability to make manage presentations, accounting data to the management team every quarter. So during the interview, I said, okay, candidate, tell me where you've made presentations to the management, to the management team every quarter. Walk me through where you've done that. So now if the person has an accent, but they still can make those presentations once a quarter or work with a other uh, people in accounting or marketing to put product specs together, that's what you need to measure. Don't measure it in some personal characteristic of what you believe the interview believes to be good communication skills. We say convert having to doing. They got to be results oriented. Okay, where do you want results? What does that look like? Oh, they got to take motivation to design code and get it done accurately. Fine, that's what we'll measure. So convert every single personality trait or competency into a performance objective. So now you have some objective criteria to measure. That was what got David Goldstein, the uh, chair of the OFCCP practice at Little Mendels, and said, you nailed it. That's yeah, how yeah. you focus on uh, objective criteria. 
And that's where everybody gets wrong. That's why I don't like Lominger. They kick me out of meetings and skill uh, success factors, skill soft. You're focusing on stuff that doesn't predict performance. Take those same competencies and focus on what does that have to do on the job. And it's a game changer when you do that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, you know, I think one of the challenges that we're facing right now, and I'm curious to hear your perspective on this, is just the 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 scarcity of talent. You know, trying to find people right now, and you know, and and to be honest, and um, I'm sure some of you HR people are probably nodding uh, your heads at this. Sometimes we're just hiring a person because <laughs> oh, yeah. because we have such a, a a lack of of candidates. So so when you're in that type of a situation where the talent pool is not deep and you're you know and and being quote too picky is is not really possible. How do you, how do you modify your approach? Do you change uh, the way that you think about bringing people into organizations or is it more important now than ever to be? uh, Let's say this. I think it's always important. Uh, But I think the issue that if I go back and I wrote my first book, Hire With Your Head in 1997, actually wrote it in 96, got published in 97. And in 1998 or so, McKinsey came out with a report, the war for talent was a strategic comparative. And then other people say, well, the war for talent is going to be won. This is 25 years ago now, uh, based on having an applicant tracking system, having job boards, and building in-house corporate recruiting departments. And I said, it's a bunch of BS. You got the wrong strategy. You can't have a weed out the weak strategy of posting boring jobs, uh, filtering on skills and competencies and academics uh, that don't predict performance uh, and figure you're going to win the war for talent. Good people, the top 25%, the top third, are looking for career moves. It's an attract-in strategy, not a weed-out-the-weak strategy. And I, to my mind, I made this contention 25 years ago. I still believe today HR thinks you can post a boring job and expect to get good people. You're not going to get, it's got to be a high touch association, spend more time with the right people, build a deep network of referrals, leverage your employees, get them to attract the best people they know and start thinking differently about how you hire people. But it's a much more high touch approach as opposed to a weed out the weak approach. And I think if you don't get the strategy right, hey, we want to raise the talent bar, we want to attract the best, you're never going to get anything right. We let hiring managers off the hook by posting boring job descriptions. Of course, that's why you can't get good people. Nobody, no good people want to say, oh, I'll take an ill-defined lateral transfer for more money. So you've made money the issue, you've posted boring jobs, and you have great resignation because you're not developing people properly based on what they want to do. I mean, you put all the pieces together, it's pretty logical. And I believe <laughs> that HR has screwed up for the last 25 or longer years. It's I as could- clear as day. You want to be strategic? Well, get strategic and how the best people uh, accept jobs, how they promote, how they develop, and how they grow. And if you put those things in place, you'll be an HR leader that's worth millions. There you go. I can, you know, I love engineers. I work with engineers all day long. And I can just, the, the way your brain works, it's like, yep, this guy was an engineer because oh, it is logical. I was born, <laughs> see, the issue was I was born an engineer and a recruiter, which really yeah. shocks the heck out of me. <laughs> uh, even in, I was talking to an old fraternity brother. So this is like, uh, he called me the other day. He's uh, hiring. He, we just known each other. But I, this is like 55 years ago. I was an engineer. Uh, and he said, oh, Lou, you were the rec- uh, the rush chairman for three years. That's all I wanted to do is I could. So I was an engineer and a sales and a recruiter. I mean, it was just weird that that background is. It's a very odd background. I would say that. 
But I do think, you know, it's what's fascinating about that background and what what I really appreciate about your approach is, you know, I think HR could use a little bit of that type of thinking, right? It's that kind of that a logical- A little bit, a lot. Yeah, a lot. Yeah. And it's the whole like, okay, if all I'm making this job, if the only differentiator in this job is I'm paying more money than where that person currently is, then what is that person's motivation? Money. And what's going to happen when somebody else comes to them and says, hey, I'll pay you X- whatever dollars more to come do the same job over, they're going to leave. Right. And then, and talk about all the challenges that we're facing with the great resignation or whatever you want to brand it. What it is, is it's people who are just, they're just leaving for better opportunities. So maybe just work on your opportunity. (laughs) Well, I think in some way, and this has been research and there was this, uh, I had somebody in one of my trainings or uh, leadership groups I had, his name is Todd Rose. Uh, he's head of president of a company called Populous.org, and he wrote a book called Collective Illusions, but he did, just came out with what the American Workforce Index. And he basically said, what drives human performance? And it's not different from Gallup's Q12 or Google's Project Oxygen, but once you're over a threshold of money, those aren't the drivers of success. The drivers of success are the work you're doing, who you're doing with the chance to learn and grow and be developed and having the resources to maximize your potential. Those are what keeps people there. So you look at what are the root causes of this great resignation and you summarize it. It's not money. So paying people more money to stay or more money to accept the job, you've just basically set the stage to have this loop, continuous loop of underperformance and dissatisfaction. So it all starts with the right strategy. Let's, let's hire people for the right reasons. Let's pay You got to be pay people competitively. So if you're not in the game, it ain't going to happen. So you got to be above a threshold. You know, and obviously everyone wants 10, 20, 30% more, but as long as you get that threshold, that doesn't become the driver of on the job success. And I think how people accept jobs, how people perform on those jobs has to be changed. And it all starts by asking people, what does this person in this role have to do to be successful? Let's hire for those reasons. And let's give people career moves and let them learn and grow and stretch them so they can become the best they're capable of becoming. Absolutely. So much great content, but we are coming towards the end of our time together. Oh, thank and goodness I'm getting old and tired. <laughs> <laughs> I want to shift gears. We're going to go through the Rebel HR flash round. Three quick questions. Ready? I'm ready. Well, right. they might not be as flashy as you think, but I'm ready. That's all right. I'm fascinated to hear these responses. All right. Question number one, what is your favorite people book? Well, my favorite book of all time, I guess it would be a people book, is The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, or maybe Highly Effective Executives by Stephen Covey. Uh, to me, that's great. Seven habits, uh, they're all great. I actually looked for those habits. I probably... in picked up some as I was looking at people who were successful as a recruiter. But when I saw them written, I said, yeah, this is what we're looking for. The best people have these seven habits. So to me, that's the best book. I still refer to it all the time. Uh, we almost got, as of many years ago, almost got bought out by that company. Um, never happened, but we certainly talked to them about it. And uh, it was just fascinating. I still find it a fascinating book. And it is my best people book of all time. I love that book. I, I actually uh, just reread it here. Um, and it's funny, I read it probably 15 years ago, um, and rereading it now, I'm, I'm 
taken even more away from it. So, you know, it's definitely um, worth well, a reread. And I think the it's, first it's one is begin with the end in mind. And if I looked at our performance-based hiring process, okay, what do you want this person to do? What does that person need to do to be successful a year from now, two years from now, and then build up all the steps needed to get there? Begin with Absolutely. the end in mind is, in my, is they're all, all the other six are equally as important, but that one drives the whole process. Absolutely. All right. Question number two, who should we be listening to? Boy, that's a tough question. Obviously, I don't want to. <laughs> I would say, I would say, Colin uh, Colin Cowherd. He's a sports announcer. He is so great. He you can apply his concepts on sports and what drives people uh, to do what they do uh, to everyday life. So I listen to him all every day. So I know that's probably <laughs> unbelievable that I would say that, but that's who I listen to every day, and I love it. Listen, you know, good for you. Um, but I, I, he threw shade at the Iowa Hawkeyes a few years ago, so he's he's dead to Hawkeye Nation. So I don't know if I can. I can't well, say I that on this podcast. He's <laughs> definitely as biased as the rest of it, but I like him. We live in LA now, so I'm that's all that good. One. It's all good. He is. He's yeah. I, I I've listened to Colin Howard here and there. So <laughs> last question here: How can our listeners connect with you? Yeah, well, you can certainly check us out at performancebasedhiring.com. You certainly could follow me on LinkedIn. You certainly, if you want to specifically check us out, uh, go to info at performancebasedhiring.com. But I would actually basically say go to performancebasedhiring.com, buy a copy of Hire With Your Head, uh, Hire With Your Head, I think, dot .com, hirewithyourhead.com. You'll get there. Join our book club. Every month or so, we we spend time for those people who buy. And you're not talking big bucks here, 12 bucks. You buy the book. I get 37 cents each one you do. Uh, we actually talk about how to implement a lot of the principles we talked about on uh, your show, Kyle. So that's how I would do it. Love that. Again, that's Hire With Your Head, using performance-based hiring to build outstanding, diverse teams. Lou, it's been an absolute joy. I love that you are pushing the boundaries, challenging all of us to continue to get better. Uh, keep up the great work and thanks for spending some time with us. Great. Thank you very much, Kyle. Delighted to be with you and I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. Thanks, Lou. All right. That does it for the Rebel HR podcast. Big thank you to our guests. Follow us on Facebook at Rebel HR Podcast, Twitter at Rebel HR Guy, or see our website at rebelhumanresources.com. The views and opinions expressed by Rebel HR Podcast are those of the authors and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of any of the organizations that we represent. No animals were harmed during the filming of this podcast. Baby.